Hello boys and girls. Welcome to this episode of Seeking Satya podcast. My guest today Arun Saigal created a no-code app development platform Thunkable. I invited him here to talk about it and the future of no-code platforms. He is an MIT grad and Forbes 30 under 30 and also an accomplished musician, conducts orchestra in San Francisco and plays the violin and the mridangam. Arun, thanks for being on the show. Father, thanks so much for having me. Originally from Boston? Boston, born and raised, lived there, went to high school there, undergrad, grad school, so yeah. Boston, Boston. All the way. <laughs> Culturally great city and uh, all kinds of things happening there with MIT and Harvard and all these great schools. Um, but for you as a kid growing up, uh, were you influenced by and how uh, you thought about, you know, education or um, ambitions and things like that? Yeah, growing up in Boston, I think it was the best city in the world to grow up in because, uh, because of the, you know, huge influence of the universities and education system there was a tremendous amount of intellectual diversity uh and a lot of just you know expectation of great education there was because you could just walk the you know halls the streets of Harvard of MIT Tufts all these fantastic universities that were just all uh in the Boston area um there was so much you know emphasis on education on learning on intellectual curiosity made me always be more excited and more passionate about education and when you wanted to learn things you could just go you know as a kid i could just go listen to talks from MIT professors or go have music concerts that i would yeah. listen to uh you know by the great musicians who were in and coming to boston and and i think that was that was such a such a cool experience uh to grow up amongst uh was it also a lot of pressure <laughs> in terms of like oh my god there's all these great schools and if i don't get into one of these uh, i'm kind of a loser i i was very fortunate to grow up in a family and in a town where you didn't feel that pressure as much mm. i don't think i felt as much of that there were kind of expectations you know the expectation was that you'll go to college and you'll study hard and you'll do well but it yeah. wasn't a, if you don't get in you know you'll be in trouble i think that's at least until my sister went to college my older sister went to MIT <laughs> and at that point she was very clear that if you don't get into MIT then I'm going to disown you as a sibling but uh before that i don't think it was and i think it was because i grew up in a in the town i grew up in uh in burlington massachusetts was a was a pretty you know it was a cool town of what i would say very you know normal awesome fun people and so the expectation was that you worked hard and you did well but kind of as long as you tried your hardest and did your best you know that was all you could ask for and uh you play instruments and you're um a beatbox uh, uh specialist and uh rap battler if <laughs> twitter profile <laughs> uh yeah. where where does that come from i would assume that's from your parents yeah i do a lot of music uh i it, it definitely comes from my parents my mother's a south indian classical bharatanatyam dance teacher uh and i think my parents are both big uh music dance and arts uh kind of aficionados so growing up i learned uh viola uh trombone uh and the mridangam the kind of indian south indian classical drum yeah and so throughout that uh throughout those experiences i you know got more involved in music started performing more and playing more these days i conduct a symphony in san francisco the san francisco civic symphony i conduct uh i also play in an orchestra here uh on the viola and then i also perform um rangam and rap and beatbox pretty regularly uh so the music part of my life is 
is pretty important and it's a pretty significant chunk of my time, uh, but it's always been a big uh, passion for me. And I've been very fortunate. Again, growing up in Boston, you have some of the best musical institutions with the New England Conservatory and the Berklee yep. College of Music uh, being right there where I was able to grow up and do a lot of math and science, but also spend a lot of time learning uh, music from some of the best in the world. And I've been very lucky to be able to continue uh, doing music at a fairly serious level, um, both during MIT, where I was involved in starting the MIT OMS, uh, South Asian mm -hmm. Acapella Group, um, and even post-MIT, where I spent a lot of time um, throughout the Bay Area playing and performing. The interesting thing is even now, being um, busy with getting your startup going and uh, scaling it, you're continuing to do that. And I'd like to probably touch on some of that later in the uh, session on some of the routines or tactics that you do to manage all these things. Uh, I think that's something that people find challenging. Uh, you have a passion, but then you don't have time for it. <laughs> Definitely want to get into Thunkable and uh, the whole story around that and your vision for it and all that. Uh, briefly, before we jump into that, like you've then moved on, you went to MIT, as you mentioned, you did your uh, bachelor's and master's at MIT. Was that a dream of yours to go there? Uh, was it pressure from Amrita, your sister? <laughs> How did you end up uh, going there? For sure. So growing up, I knew from a fairly early age that I wanted to be an engineer. Both of my parents are engineers and I liked the idea of building things with my hands. I was always a you know big tinkerer. I was a Legos kid. I used to build yeah. all kinds of things with Legos. Stories, and program yeah. them. My mother tells a story of when I was a kid and I wanted to understand how VCRs worked. And so I didn't know if it was just the shape of the object that you had to put into the VCR. So <laughs> I peanut butter jelly sandwich and stuck it in the VCR and tried to hit play to see if that yep. worked. Cause I'm like, the shape is approximately right. And then when that didn't work, I, you know, disassembled and dissected the VCR. And of course made a whole mess of the thing, but I've always been a, a fairly, you know, curious engineer type individual. And so, um, when I went to high school and I started thinking more seriously about where I wanted to go to college, I think, uh, you know, MIT being both so close to where I grew up, as well as being, many would say, the best engineering school in the world, it seemed like, hey, if I can get in there, that would be awesome. In retrospect, I couldn't have asked for anything better, um, both in terms of the faculty I got to work with. I think that was so incredible, working with some of the people, especially in computer science, who some of the fundamental, you know, godfathers, creators of what we do uh, my lab was advised by, you know, Hal Abelson, who's yeah. a big, you know, founder of the Creative Commons and was somebody I did a lot of work with. And actually my, uh, you know, co-advisor of our lab was Tim Berners-Lee, who invented the World Wide Web. Course, and yeah. these were just the people I got to sit with and work with and spend time with every day. Ananta Chandrakasan, he was another one so, of my yeah. advisors. He's now the dean at the MIT, dean. you know, mm -hmm. one of the most cited electrical engineers in history. And to just have those people be your colleagues, be people you worked with. And not even in computer science, but, you know, I did things like I studied some linguistics. And so I got to, huh. you know, have dinner with Noam Chomsky and talk to him about linguistics. And just to be able to do that, and whether it's music or English or literature, art, um, having that kind of resource and that uh, all in one concentrated place was just, uh, you know, a fantastic kind of opportunity of a lifetime. You go there to pick up technology and tinker and things like that, but you actually learn all-rounded a lot of other things, absolutely. And also one of the other things I wanted to touch on was you put a sandwich in a VCR. I mean, like, where is that kind of curiosity coming from, right? I mean, people don't seem to even experiment. And that's the best way to learn, break things and try to break them apart and learn and build them 
back. Were you always like playing with all kinds of things and trying to break things or a hacker, quote unquote? It was some of both. I was, I was always, I was always good in school. I liked school. I thought, you know, I liked learning things. I liked doing well in school. And, you know, again, having a, an older sister who was also always, she was always really good. And I always thought she was just great at everything. And so I wanted to try to be like her. So there was that aspect of me, but there was a, I guess you could say mischievous side where I was always very curious to push things to the boundaries. Another thing my mother always makes fun of me for is just asking too many questions. Always asked questions about everything. Folks who know me now even still say I ask too many questions, but <laughs> I always was just curious about how things work, why things work as they do. And it doesn't have to just be machines, whether it's about politics or religion or art. It's always something I've questioned, you know, the how and the why. I'm naturally a fairly curious person and I love learning things. I love learning about people. I love learning about my surroundings and kind of understanding it. Uh, as much as I can. And so the VCR, you know, incident was my questioning would lead me, lead me to do mischievous things yeah. like the VCR incident where I'd say, well, how does this work? I guess I'll have to try it because I wanted to push it to the, to the edge. So I would sometimes get in trouble. I would sometimes, you know, climb up too high on something and not know how to get down. I'd put a <laughs> peanut butter and jelly in the VCR. I would unplug all the wires to see what happened. And then, you know, maybe we, you know, the lights aren't working or something, but it was always just kind of a curiosity and a questioning kind of got me into the trouble that I would get into. <laughs> That's a good kind of trouble for sure. And from, from MIT, um, where did you uh, end up? I think you went on to uh, work for Quizlet. Is that the next uh, path? Yeah, you so I had done a bunch of work in education technology at MIT. I, um, I had worked on Scratch, uh, which was oh. a tool to teach kids yeah. to code that's you know, become very popular and used. I worked on App Inventor, which was the predecessor to Thunkable, which we'll you know, talk about afterwards. I had spent time working in Google on kind of some open source education initiatives. I worked at Khan Academy. Uh, so I had a lot of experience working in education technology and a lot of passion about it. I love, similarly as I love questioning things, I love kind of helping people answer their questions. So I love teaching. So I spent uh, a bunch of time in education technology and then uh, Andrew mm. Sutherland, who's the founder of Quizlet, was a good friend of mine uh, from MIT, and he left MIT to go work on Quizlet full-time. And so when I was finishing up MIT, he reached out and said, hey, you know, you have a lot of passion for education. Quizlet's in our very early days. I think when I interviewed at Quizlet, there were maybe five people there. <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, it's going to be something big. And I looked at Quizlet and what it was doing. And I said, this is going to be something that's going to be really impactful on, on the world and society. And I mean, with five people, they already had, you know, tens of millions of users and it was such a phenomenal platform. And for me, as someone who was excited and curious about startups and kind of being on small teams, I said, okay, what a great opportunity to both, you know, work on a product that I think is super impactful in the type of environment that I work, want to work well on, uh, but also get those kind of learnings that you can only get from kind of being at a startup, uh, thinking about business models, thinking about fundraising, thinking about where do we invest our resources when we're very resource constrained. Uh, and so, you know, Andrew said, hey, you should come spend time with me um, and do this. And for me to be able to do all that and work in education, which was something I had a passion for, seemed like a no brainer. Uh, and sure enough, I went and did that and it was, uh, it was a fantastic experience. Yeah, I mean, Quizlet is phenomenal, like you mentioned. I mean, they have so much uh, study material and they are now covering like a gamut of not just K through 12, but all over um, in terms of um, even professional education and whatnot. It's, uh, any um, particular lessons that you took away 
uh, as not a founding member, but actually being part of this uh, rocket ship that was blowing up? Yeah. So I will say when I interviewed, there were five people. They hired a couple more before I started because I had Got to you know, go finish my master's, but it was still pretty <laughs> early. Um, takeaways, I think Quizlet was a really good example of kind of product market fit and really good mm. building something that your users want. Uh, yep. Quizlet did a fantastic job of saying, hey, here's, and it started with, you know, the founder, Andrew, had a problem where it was hard to study for, he was studying for a French test and he couldn't memorize all of the words. And so he wanted, you know, some technology that would remember what words he studied and helped him, et cetera. And so he built a little basically flashcard type thing, uh, which, which was the kind of predecessor or the first, you know, kind of version of Quizlet, if you will. And what was cool about it is it was solving a very simple problem that a lot of people faced full focus on kind of getting it right for the user and mm -hmm. making sure that the user comes first. And if they have a problem we had built, you know, we were only a few people, we had a full inbuilt customer support center. This was before kind of a lot of these plug and play customer support tools. We built our own customer support center where we would listen to questions that people wrote in. We would answer every question that came to us. Uh, and we would really kind of focus on that. And what was cool there is for a while, you know, we didn't totally know what the business model was. We didn't know what the monetization was, but we were solving a problem that really, that really affected our users and that Resonated users really cared about. And mm -hmm. that allowed us to kind of experiment, you know, over time with business models, with different features um, and so on and so forth, because we had a product that people really cared about and really loved. And that I think, you know, just learning to have kind of a maniacal focus on the user above everything else, I think, was something that was really good that, that came out of Quizlet. Forbes 30 under 30, did it come after or before while you were actually still at MIT or how did that happen? And what does it really mean to you? We got into Forbes after starting, after starting Thunkable, I got think. It. Uh, it was based on the work we had been doing at Thunkable as well as the precursor that we had built at MIT, at MIT yeah. um, which was called MIT App Inventor. And the recognition was, you know, we were very, um, very blessed to get recognized for the work that we had done uh, in building Thunkable. And, you know, myself and my uh, co-founder Wei, along with a huge team, you know, we were just two small parts of a huge team and huge effort at MIT that built, MIT and Google actually, it was initially a collaboration mm -hmm. between the two that built um, MIT App Inventor. And so uh, it was, you know, really, you know, it was a great honor to be recognized for a lot of work that we had been putting in uh, basically since my undergrad days. And I think it recognized both the work that we put in as well as the potential kind of going forward um, of the impact that a tool like Thunkable uh, and that Thunkable specifically will have. And now, you know, a few years later actually has had. <laughs> Great, I think nice segue into Thunkable. If you can think it, you can thunk it, huh? That's it. <laughs> uh, what was the initial idea? How did you come about that idea? I know you had worked at Quizlet and you have a long history of working on um, educational projects. Um, so I can see how it might have uh, culminated maybe, but I'd like to hear from you. Like what was the initial idea and the vision for Thunkable? Absolutely, so I started uh, at MIT by working on this product called MIT Scratch, as I mentioned. And so at the time it was, you know, very early stages, we were kind of figuring it out. Now Scratch, I think last year had, you know, over hundred million people yeah. used it. Um, so it's it, just in the last year alone, it's, it's, you know, become kind of the default way that kids learn how to code. And I think that was really cool and powerful for me. And it was, 
And so we were thinking about, hey, wouldn't it be cool if we could do something like Scratch, but actually enable anyone to build something outside of the Scratch world, something in the real world. And that became um, mobile apps. We made a bet that, hey, mobile is going to be in the future. You know, we made a bet that many folks did saying, we think smartphones are going to be the future. And if we can empower people to build um, for their smartphones, that's going to be so powerful. Uh, and so we teamed up with the team at Google led by a gentleman by the name of Mark Friedman. And we talked to Mark and said, hey, wouldn't it be cool to, to do that? And Mark kind of came back and said, hey, you know, I'm working on building the Android operating system. And even I find it really hard to build Android apps. I would love to make it easier for anyone to build Android apps. So we built this thing, App Inventor, and launched, you know, really fully to the public around 2010. By 2014, we had pretty much grown to be the largest app development tool in the world for non-developers. Um, we had some four and a half million people who had built tens of million apps in, in all of the in all countries, I think, outside of North Korea. And we said, well, this is really cool. And this is way more powerful than just a cool, you know, teach people to code tool. So we started interviewing our users and we said, hey, who are you and what are you doing? And a yeah. bunch of them said, hey, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm just goofing around here. I'm learning to code. I'm tinkering. But a large percentage of them said, hey, I'm a professional, I'm a business person, I am somebody who has an idea, don't know how to code, and I found App Inventor and so I'm using it. He said, okay, well, why are you using us? And they said, you're the only tool that's powerful enough that it does what I'm trying to do, but simple enough that I, a non-software engineer, can actually do it. He said, okay, do you want more things? They said, yes, we would love it if it was cross-platform, worked on iOS, if it was a lot prettier, if I could make mm. money off my apps, all these things that we weren't going to do as a research project, but as a company made total sense to do. Um, so fast forward to the end of 2015 and we said, okay, you know what? It's, it's time to take this out of academia. If this is going to reach its full potential, it needs to be a standalone business where, you know, we're not just taking grant money, but we're actually getting our users to invest in us so that we can give them the tools that they want. And at that point, kind of, I talked to a number of folks who were in the lab, who had been at Google, who were close advisors of mine, and uh, I was very fortunate that a number of folks were willing to start working with me uh, kind of in part-time and advisory capacities. And then Wade, my co-founder, uh, who was still in Boston at the time, said, hey, I'm ready to do it. Let's move to the Bay Area and let's get started. Uh, and so he moved out to the Bay where I was. Um, and we did Y Combinator and, you know, kind of the rest is history. Oh, wow. A couple of things I wanted to touch on were um, the initial founding team and um, like the product market fit. Uh, it seems like you didn't have to struggle for it, but maybe that's not true at all. Uh, it looks like it's all rosy. You, you had a product market fit as part of Google App Inventor project, and then you said, like, let's scale this and make it real business. Uh, could you share anything around how did you go from zero to one, and uh, were there any struggles to get to that? Yeah, so there were certainly struggles, but it, it, it is a little different than kind of maybe what the, the more standard story is. Um, and that, that really comes around the zero to one part where when we, when we started the company, um, had a sense of people who would use us and find us useful. Uh, and we just made basically a better version, you know, I would consider a better version of our, of our predecessor. Uh, we made it a little more pretty, a little more functional. We added, you know, some nice features. And so there were a bunch of people who came over to us. I think, you know, within the first month we went from zero to 10,000 users or something like that, Oof. which was awesome. The difference though is because we came from a horizontal product, i.e. a product that had everyone from kids in schools to big giant companies, to small businesses, to 
you know, people within the U.S., people outside of the U.S., people who spoke English, people who didn't speak English, versus in a lot of companies, when you start, you say, okay, we're building a product for this one user. We're only going to target these users, yep. and that's it. Because of our legacy, we started with a whole broad base of users. And I think it was actually a benefit for us um, in the early days because there weren't that many kind of low-code, no-code platforms. And so we became a tool that anyone who was trying to build an app could come to and you know, if we if 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 we had the features they needed, they could build an app with us. But it mm -hmm. also meant that um, we had to kind of you know satisfy a lot of different users and use cases instead of just being laser focused on hey, this is the only use case that we have to focus on. You've um, mentioned Y Combinator for a second. How was that experience like? I know it's great. People say it's amazing uh, being part of that uh, cohort and uh, you know having the um, experience of demo day and whatnot. Any um, takeaways that you might pass on to people who are aspirants of getting into Y Combinator? It's like getting into Harvard at MIT now, so. <laughs> it is, it's amazing how, how, uh, how selective it's become and how competitive it's become, just like universities. It's nuts. <laughs> y Combinator, it's, it's a fantastic program. I was really you know, happy to have taken part in it and would definitely recommend it to anyone. I think the interesting thing is Y Combinator, People think, oh, I, I get in and, you know, it's all just great. Uh, and it's like getting into college, right? You say, oh, I got into MIT. It's all great. I got into Harvard. It's all great. You still have to work hard in college. You still have to do well. You have to take advantage of the opportunity. Mm -hmm. You can coast by, fail out of college and not interact with any of the people. And it, it doesn't, it's of no value. Um, what it does, though, by getting into MIT, by getting into Harvard and any of these other, I mean, any, any really university in America, uh, you know, they're all pretty great to kind of, it gives you kind of presents to you more opportunities than you previously had, but still to you to take advantage of them. And so with Y Combinator, getting in is awesome. And I highly recommend it to anyone who's considering starting a company, but just by getting in, they're not going to build your product for you. They're not yeah. going to get you users. That's your job. What is really good about it. I think there's, there, there's a couple things. First off, you are in a group of people who are going through the same struggles as you yeah. and are around the same place. So having folks to commiserate with, people to give you advice on, oh, I faced that problem last week, here's how I solved it. And people who can just kind of show you, hey, you're not alone, like this is something that everyone goes through, your struggles are my struggles. It's really nice and refreshing to have that. That's, that's one thing. Um, thing number two is there's just a lot of really good mentors uh, mm -hmm. who can just really help you succeed um, in your business and when you get kind of confused and you don't know where to turn you're like hey I have this question about legal something well there are lawyers yeah. who can just sit down with you and help you um, and the last thing is there's just there's a lot of random things to running a business that aren't you know the things you talk about um, when you're talking about starting a company you're usually talking about oh the product and the vision yeah. and the team and all that stuff is you know your job as the company founders but Y Combinator helps you a lot with like you need to deal with accounting. You need to file taxes. You need to incorporate your company. Like, who should I talk to? How should I do that? Um, they'll give you advice on all of that. And there's probably another Y Combinator company that has been built to solve that problem. Yeah. Uh, and so it's just a great network of folks um, that can help you out. And kind of all those things together uh, make it a kind of tremendously valuable experience. Um, do you consider um, yourself as a low code or no code? We definitely fall in the low-code, no-code world. Uh, it depends on the, the case that you talk about. Uh, you don't need to write any code to use Thunkable, so we're often mm -hmm. considered in the you know, no-code conversations. Got it. And if uh, people actually are sort of intermediate to advanced programmers but don't have 
the chops to build a mobile app or don't have the time or whatnot, can they do interesting stuff as well? Or is it more um, uh, catered to um, people who don't know how to code at all? We definitely see a lot of intermediate and advanced programmers who, a lot of them who don't have mobile app development skills and some of them who even do and just say, hey, Thunkable is easier, faster, better uh, than writing the code by myself. Uh, The nice part about Thunkable is we spit out under the hood native code that then turns into your app that's built nicely, et cetera. It's not obvious that it was built with Thunkable versus, you know, built with just regular native programming. And I think that's something that uh, is really great. And as a result, we have a lot of programmers who come to us and say, hey, you know, I don't know how to write Kotlin or Java or Swift or Objective-C, but I know I want to build an app. So I'm just going to use Thunkable. And because they have a, a programming background, they're actually just really fast at using fast, it. Yeah. They know exactly kind uh, of how to think about building a product and software. And so they're just very fast at building with us. Um, but we do intentionally have a lot of advanced capabilities, both in terms of the kind of functionality you can build as well as in the design capabilities. Awesome. Okay. Could you give, uh, just to give a perspective to the listeners or, you know, who is interested in this platform, like, could you give a range of, um, like maybe a very simple app versus a very complex app that's possible? Yeah, I'm happy to do that. We can also talk about kind of some apps that everyone may know. So Instagram, for example, people use. What is kind of the main function of Instagram? You take a photo, you can upload it, you can share it with a group of people, you can have a way to log into your account, uh, that kind of stuff. All of those capabilities exist in Thunkable. All of those capabilities you can build. Uh, Similarly, let's say a ride sharing app in Uber or Lyft. Um, The app, basically, when you open it, it displays to you prices that it's fetching from some backend. It's displaying to you a map with some cars on it of where Mm -hmm. they are. And then when you push the request button, it says, okay, here's your vehicle. Um, Again, something that, you know, is pretty straightforward to build on Thunkable. Uh, What's cool about Thunkable, I think, is we abstract a lot of the complicated concepts that are simple but implementation is complicated we try and abstract a lot of that away so just taking an example of like image recognition Mm -hmm. um if you're a software engineer and you've ever built anything that uses image recognition you probably know that it's fairly hard to do uh, especially if you're on mobile you have to first plug into the mobile native hardware i.e the camera pull up the camera take a photo then send it to a service it's going to do a bunch of things it's going to give you some results um when i'm when in concept image recognition is simple take a picture go figure out what's in the picture but in implementation it's actually very complicated that's something that we've tried to really abstract out so we say you know when i click a button take a picture and we just you know naturally we plug into the camera we open the camera we take the picture then you say go to image recognition we have our own you know we have an integration uh that does image recognition so you just say and then when the response comes back tell me what it says and boom and like you know, five blocks of code in three minutes on Thunkable, you built a fully functioning image recognition app. And I think that's what makes Thunkable so powerful and so exciting is that these concepts that are simple, that take developers hours, days, weeks, months to build because in practice they're hard to build. We've tried to abstract that all to make it kind of as easy as possible. Uh, I'm so excited, just the passion that you have for this. I mean, what makes this um, low code, no code so important to you? I mean, like maybe touch on the vision of why this is important to you and why this is important for the world. Totally, so the world of low code, no code is important because until recently, the we've had, we, we, I mean, we all car- carry around basically these supercomputers in our pockets, yeah. right? We have these mobile devices that have 
gigabytes and gigabytes of storage that can do that have incredible processing power that can you know communicate with any other device in the world in in in, in, in seconds the only people who can actually harness the power that the phone has are these few elite software engineers and you know there's some stats out there that i think say you know only one in a thousand people can or will ever learn to code mm-hmm. and that uh, a, a mobile app and that to me is mind-blowing that one tenth of a percent of people will be able to control the device that they have in their pocket to me that mm-hmm. seems not only unfair but it also doesn't kind of unlock the human potential around us and i, I can give you an example of what i mean you know, in Silicon Valley, we have, I don't know how many different food delivery apps to deliver any kind of food that we want. Why? Because those are the problems that the software engineers in the Valley are facing. But let's take an example of an app that was built on Dunkable. So there's this guy in Yemen who didn't know how to code and, uh, and wanted to build an app. So you see, Yemen's been in civil war since around 2015. Um, because of that, the energy grid has been uh, relatively unreliable. So in 2016, uh, this man, Anwar, uh, uh, found that a, a lot of solar power was actually being used in Yemen because solar power was reliable. It was Yemen, gotcha. there was sun, it was, you know, and there was actually a good mode, uh, there was a good kind of movement to get solar panels installed all over, which was great. Um, but no one knew how to deal with their solar panel. So how much energy did I have in my solar panel? How do I tilt my solar panels during the day? Um, you know, will it last me during the night? All this stuff. So Anwar, who didn't know how to code, decided he wanted to build an app to kind of help him manage his solar panels. Um, and he did that. And the end result was over half a million people in Yemen have now used Anwar's app to manage their home and business. Uh, the Minister of Energy gave him an award for helping solve, uh, or at least, you know, alleviate Yemen's energy crisis. And this was all, this was affecting the entire country of Yemen. Yep. And none of us were working on it because we didn't know that this was the problem. And we weren't on the ground. So even if we had come up with a solution, we wouldn't have built it in Arabic, which Anwar did, because that's <laughs> the language that people are speaking. And so by enabling, you know, folks like Anwar to build apps, we are making the world a much better place. We are empowering people to solve their own problems. And we're also unlocking creativity. What's great yeah. about Anwar is not only was this a, you know, awesome story where you're like, cool, what a great societal impact, but he made a real business out of this. This was a company mm-hmm. that he made, right? And so not only is he having a good impact on society, but he's also growing a business here. And by empowering kind of people to be creative and create businesses that solve their local needs and problems, we're kind of unlocking and unleashing the potential uh, that's latent in everyone around us. Uh, and all they need is kind of a smartphone and a platform to code on. And it's amazing, actually, the, the penetration of smartphones these days, the number of people, the billions of people in the world that have smartphones. We have this powerful technology in our hands. Why not use it to help solve even these basic problems like how do we get energy? Yeah, it puts it in perspective how powerful this is and how you're trying to disrupt or make it uh, what do you call that uh, democratizing coding if you will right? democratizing mobile I mean, it's just b2c versus b2b or are you actually like focused on uh, helping the consumers to sort of develop apps um, like anwar or are you also looking at how you can help businesses um, build for example there's app sheets that was acquired by google recently i'm just trying to understand where you fit in in the, in the landscape of things yeah i think we've been in a cool spot where we see users across the board from the B2C to the very large enterprises. Um, Our sweet spot is kind of the entrepreneurs and small, medium-sized businesses who have an idea, 
need an app to fulfill this idea, uh, but don't necessarily know how to code, nor do they have the kind of crazy money that it requires to hire a software engineer or a software engineering consulting firm to build the apps that you need. That's kind of where you see a lot of value uh, being driven by us. But we've seen use cases from the kind of very consumer app all the way up to large companies who say, hey, I need an app especially, you know, internal tools. I need an app that enables this process. I need an app to solve, you know, this inefficiency that we have um, and use that. So I'd say, you know, if you take Slack as an analogy or Dropbox, where both of those are companies that, you know, I use Slack with my friends and I use Slack at work. I use Dropbox with my friends and I use Dropbox at work. I think that's the type of analogy you see where, you know, we have this, I think the term that, uh, I don't know if I like it or not, but the kind of prosumer term is sometimes <laughs> thrown around with this, where it's both for the professional and the kind of sophisticated consumer. I think um, that's kind of the sweet spot where we lie. How far are we from, uh, let's say, creating a fortnight on Tankable? Yeah, so we have made, it depends on, again, this is one of those, you know, we try and be complete in certain ways. And then mm. there are things that we don't necessarily do. So for example, if you want to build a game on Thunkable, you can build a fairly sophisticated game. Uh, and we've seen, you know, apps being built on Thunkable that have launched, that have gotten 100,000 plus MAUs, million plus MAUs. We've seen that. So in terms of being able to scale, I think, you know, we already have that. I think in terms of being able to be, you know, kind of a high quality app, depends on what you're trying to build. With kind of a Fortnite, if you really care about, you know, super high quality, super fast, like graphics and things like that, you know, we're not necessarily, we haven't developed a gaming engine or anything like that. But if you're talking about a good, you know, 2D gaming system that has good physics and all that stuff, that's something that, you know, we have today. And we've seen a lot of really great games, you know, the Flappy Bird type of yeah, yeah. The things like Pong, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Those type of games have been built um, on Thunkable and in a very nice way. There's an Alien Invaders game uh, that I saw last month that I really liked. Um, whereas, you know, shooting down some aliens yeah. and stuff. Um, so those types of things you, you can already build on Thunkable. And so that's kind of, I think, you know, where we are. We've already seen a lot of that, but we're always working to be better in terms of being more robust, making, you know, better features, better design capabilities, all that stuff. That's something that we're always working on. And I don't think we'll ever stop working on or we'll ever be at the point where we'll be satisfied. Um, but we're always trying to push the boundary of, you know, how big can your game get? How much can you collaborate? Uh, how, you know, how good looking can the app be, right? Design is such a key thing to any yep. technology that we use these days that, you know, we're always investing in how can we make it look prettier, look nicer, et cetera. How, just to give a perspective of how big are you and like in terms of the team size and you know, also in terms of the user base, like uh, how do you see that uh, evolving? Yeah, we've got uh, we've got about 15 people on the team, um, but I think our, our team is a lot bigger than that because we're very fortunate to have a super robust community on Thunkable. So if you go uh, to yeah. community.thunkable.com, you'll see you know thousands and thousands of people who are who have accounts who are posting questions and giving answers and supporting each other's and yep. sharing the apps that they have built and sharing their designs and offering their consulting services to help. Yeah, I saw that. That's such a big reason why Thunkable is able to you know, be where we are today. It's because of our community and the support. You know, we've been super lucky. We've even hired people who have come from the Thunkable community who were Thunkable users. The best hires, so for awesome. sure. Um, and, you know, who knows it better than our users. And so we've been very yeah. lucky to have that. Uh, probably close to around a million plus users at this point. 
um, wow. we'll build out Song Bunker Bowl, which is almost every country in the world. Yeah. Uh, you know, we've seen seven-year-olds, we've seen 70-year-olds. Uh, <laughs> cool to see kind of people across the it's, board. Yeah, yeah. I think we are coming on top of time here. Just wanted to ask you a few quick questions. Uh, to start with, um, what is your moonshot? If you were to sleep tonight and wake up after five years, and if you have the thunkable vision sort of completely sort of uh, evolved, what do you see that world like? I mean, the moonshot for thunkable. That's a, it's a great question. I think where I see us, you know, in, in a few years is where, what I would say, the future app ecosystem. So we are basically empowering anyone to solve the problems around them uh, through technology. So we want to help everyone develop, distribute, and grow um, their kind of app-based solutions to problems. Uh, and that's, you know, whatever platform, you know, is the platform of the day, whether it's, you know, your uh, iPhone or Android, or it's, you know, your Oculus, or you have a thumb chip embedded at some point, I don't know, whatever it may be, we should be the tool that allows you to kind of um, build the apps that allow you to kind of harness the power of the technology around you uh, and create the whole ecosystem around it, allow you to build the apps, distribute the apps, share the apps, interact with them. Um, we should be that kind of central ecosystem that enables that. Love to be in that world. <laughs> working on it. <laughs> uh, Arun, I really wanted to spend more time on some of this stuff. Hopefully we'll have another chance as a follow-up in terms of your routines, how you manage things so you can pursue your passions, um, both personally and uh, career-wise or business-wise. Um, and I think you said you're a bike to work type of a guy on um, some place I saw, maybe it was yep, on Twitter. I, but yeah. <laughs> I bike each way. That's, that's, that's the way I get in my exercise. I try and bike everywhere. I'm yeah. lucky to be in San Francisco, which is a uh, pretty bike friendly city. And so I can bike, you know, to work, to my meetings, all that stuff. And that way, yeah. you know, I'm kind of getting in my exercise during the day and uh, doing a little part in, in saving the planet. So <laughs> all, all of that uh, is, is a good reason. Yeah, uh, it's, it's a routine and it, it seems like some of these routines help you sort of even to uh, get away from stress or have the space, headspace to think about things and uh, ideas and so on. Are there other tactics or routines that you've um, found useful for yourself that could help uh, people stay focused on their goals um, and achieve them, achieve what they want to achieve? Yeah, I, I think I have a few things that I do routinely, I'd say one is kind of in, uh, in the morning and at night actually praying. That's like a good kind of thing. Um, it just kind of sets your mind on kind of a higher thing. Think mm -hmm. about kind of the things you're trying to accomplish. Um, and kind of in conjunction with that meditating also just spending a little time clearing your mind. I think it's, it's super important to kind of give yourself that mental calm. Um, and then I think probably the, the, Two other things that I try and do is at times just kind of block off uninterrupted time to work. I think especially in the world we live in, it's very easy to yeah. be distracted by your, you know, by the distractions that get you, whether it's, you know, your phone, Facebook, politics, whatever. <laughs> but also just being in, in the work society we work at, um, people are very comfortable walking over and saying, hey, can we talk? Can I help you? Can you help me? Yeah. And, and, you know, blocking off the time for yourself. And then the last thing, which I, I, I think I do, which is, probably the least intuitive is that I spend time kind of focusing intensely on something that isn't work. Mm. Um, and so for me, that's music. So, and the reason I think that that's so important is it really lets you 
get away. I think if you, you know, if you say, Hey, I'm going to take some chill time and not think about work, but I'm going to watch TV, you know, there's still work going on in the back of my mind. But if I'm trying to conduct a symphony and make sure that the, you know, trumpet and bassoons are coming in at the right place. Like I'm not thinking about work. I'm trying to make sure that the bassoons come in. Right. Yeah. And so by, by doing something else intensely, it allows you to kind of really think about something else and clear your mind and then kind of come back to work and appro approach it with kind of uh, fresh eyes and fresh thoughts. Oh, very interesting. And that's yeah. been one of the most helpful things for me is just doing something that isn't work very intensely. Very intensely. I think that's uh, bottom line. I think that's something everyone can take away. I mean, uh, we often not do that kind of intense work. I think deep work, you might call it. People are all like trying to multitask and there's dings going on everywhere and feel very productive and busy. But that's where, <laughs> uh, that's not where the thing is. I think I'm doing intense work. Thank you for sharing that. Um, and that could be a brief but focused amount of time, but very intense. And then that takes you away from everything else, but just that one thing. That's awesome. Um, any uh, books that you've gifted that really sort of helps you in your journey so far? Probably still favorite book is uh, Dale Carnegie, How to Win Friends and Influence People. Yes. I think it's just such a great, you know, it's a simple book on basically like how to be an effective human. Yeah. Uh, and I think it just, it's super applicable to everyone in any situation. Uh, and what I like about it is it's, it's quite, it's kind of coding, coding great, you know, philosophers, religious thinkers, et cetera, and just applying a business lens on it <laughs> and saying, you know, it's important to do all these things, you know, for, because it's good to be, you know, good to people and all that. And here are all the moral reasons, but also right. just practicing business, <laughs> like being nice to people helps. And so it's, uh, it's one of my favorite books. It's an easy read and it just kind of, you know, the messages are so basic and so simple. Mm. So I'd say that's probably my, my favorite one to give people, uh, and still one of my favorite books. Cool, cool. I agree with you. Yeah, I've read it several times, but still can't get enough. <laughs> exactly. um, if, if you could write anything on a full moon that the whole world can see, uh, and it's not thunkable, but something else, <laughs> what, <laughs> what would you write? It could be something that you want to share with people around the planet. Oh, well, the first answer know. was Thunkable, but you took that one away from me. Uh, build apps, use Thunkable. Build I apps. Uh, I, I think uh, smile. Mm. Uh, and if you look up at the moon and it tells you to smile, how are you not going to smile? Yeah, that's and a great one. Yeah. Maybe follow that up with meditate and be vegetarian. <laughs> meditate, be vegetarian, save the planet. I Love think, it. you know, be good having another planetary type figure telling you to save the planet. Oh, um, that's sweet. I, I think if I had one word, though, it, it would just be smile. Because telling you to take a moment and smile, uh, I, I think people don't do enough of that these days. And, and, you know, you have all these problems and all these stresses and you take a moment and smile, you know, 90% of them go away. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally with you. And one last question, and, uh, which is, Knowing what you know now, if you have to go back in time machine, advise the Arun Saigal in high school, anything that comes to your mind that you thought could have been done better or differently? And the reason I'm pausing is because there's infinite things that I could have done. <laughs> oh, sure. um, I think if it's, you know, one piece of advice, uh, I think the biggest thing is probably just invest in others. Um, huh. 
it's it's all about people at the end of the day everything you mm. do the, the work that you do the people who teach you the people who help you the people you teach the people you help it's all about it's all about people um i am where i am because i've been very blessed to have uh a number of great circumstances but most importantly great people um surrounding me so i think you know it's just remembering that everyone including yourself has something to offer so get to know people you never know how you can help each other down the line. Uh, you don't know how you'll be able to help them someday, how they'll be able to help you. Uh, and even if it's not helping each other, just being a supportive friend and having supportive friends is always is always so valuable. So I think, you know, always making sure to take the time to invest in others because that's the, I think, you know, best thing you can do for them and for yourself. Invest in people. And awesome. if people wanted to connect with you, uh, how, what's the best way for uh, them to connect with you? LinkedIn is always a great way to reach me. Yeah, otherwise you can just email, you know, hello at thunkable.com. It goes to me and half of our team members. Uh, so always, always happy to connect with folks, especially ones who, who come, come, come through your podcast, Madhav. Looking, <laughs> looking forward to connecting with them more. Sure. Thanks so much. Such a pleasure. Thank All the best. Take care.